0: Welcome to the Market Podcast. I'm Ari Paparo. I'm joined today by Eric Franchi. And we have two guests today. We have Matthew Roche, the CEO of ID5, and James Avery, the CEO of Kevil. And what we're doing this week is a special episode. We're calling it the fundraising episode. We've been asked quite a bit for what's going on in the world of ad tech fundraising, what it is to try to raise money in this environment. So we have two CEOs who are in the middle of the process who are going to help hopefully give us some insight so Matthew and James thanks for being here hello everyone
1: hey thanks for having me
2: hey guys
0: and one VC
2: and uh, disclosure my fund is an investor in both companies actually all companies represented
0: here including market texture. wow uh, that's pretty pretty good this better be a good episode to get your ROI up there uh, or I've been, ROI. I've been excited all week and I'm at the beat <laughs> who would you say uh, you're I'm not
1: in, invested in Eric
0: yeah, exactly. Uh, I'm an investor in ID five as well. So, there's, uh, so we got all these conflicts of interest going around, but there are no no conflict, no interest, as they say. So, quick promo. Uh, so, on Architecture TV, we had a really interesting episode this week that dropped with Nexon, formerly known as Tremor, formerly known as Amobi, formerly known as Red One, formerly known as uh, Take Your Pick. Um, Very they're good. an interesting company with a lot of things going on. So, I think it's it's worth a watch on Architecture TV. All right, let's dive into it. So conventional wisdom is that it's impossible to raise money as an ad tech company and that it's impossible to raise money as any kind of venture funded company, unless you're AI or superconductivity or something like that. Tell me why I'm wrong. Maybe start with Matthew.
3: Oh, well, I think that there's a lot of money out there. I wouldn't say it's easy, certainly. And it hasn't been easy for the past 12 months. I think the market, I don't i don't have stats, I'll look at the specialists for that, but the, the market was pretty dry for the past 12 months, I think. And and it's always been difficult, I think, for AdTech, just because it's complicated. And investors don't like what's complicated, right? They're like, they're like clear, like black, white, you know, right, wrong type of things. And tech is, is all sorts of grays. And, and that makes it for a difficult read. So it's, I mean, I've never had an easy fundraise experience, right? I, I don't know how it is for you, James, but like for me, it's always been a battle. So it's no different this year. Uh, certainly not easier, but there's money out there and, you know, there are smart investors who get what you were doing and, and, and are ready to invest. So I guess you just need to uh, be ready to look for them a bit more. Yeah, James.
1: Yeah, I mean, I would say, I mean, I think raising money is hard no matter what, but I do think it is it is harder in ad tech, especially because I think you have you have a lot of investors who made kind of one or two bets back 10 years ago and they went wrong and they were like, Oh, this this company was doing 20 million in EBITDA and then went to zero because you know, it turns out they were uh, you know, side loading video streaming ads onto websites that didn't know they were there and and things like that. So, like there's there's a lot of that kind of bad blood, it feels like, and in venture capitalists out there. And so there's a lot of company, a lot of firms that just don't do ad
3: tech. Uh, and then for us, like Sorry, do you think there's more bad blood in in ad tech than in other industries? Because like, I mean, companies have been losing billions of dollars in all sorts of industries, right? And so, no, why, I mean, I think like I ad would tech in particular.
1: I'd rather be raising an ad tech than like like 15 minute food delivery right now. Right? <laughs> so like there's like there's 100%. there's plenty of there's plenty of tough like industries out there. But I think like like compared to like SaaS, right? Like it's like I think if you're if you're building like a SaaS tool for sales and marketers, right? Like that there's I don't think there's like bad
2: blood out there in that space. I would bifurcate the the venture market because I spent a lot of time trying to educate, you know, aforementioned firms that made a bad investment in 2010 and soured on the category, you know, including 2023 after there's been like multiple like home run Grand Slam wins across the across the board. I think you have the old guard, which, you know, I think for better, for worse, probably for better um, is frankly beginning to age out. And um, transitioning the you know, sort of leadership at their firms, and you know, there's less bias, but that bias is still there for some of those like larger uh, Silicon Valley-based firms that you know, again, ma- made a bad investment in, in an ad network in, in in 2011. But then on the other side, there's been an explosion in all types of VC firms, and you know, educating those folks and getting them to understand this category has been a, a good spend of time, and I, I find that they're more apt to lean in. And then you've got the folks that know the space have worked in the space you know have capital vehicles to invest in the space and you know they're 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 like us heads down and, and doing this stuff but you know this generalist vc who has a large fund who you know has a has a brand name those are those are typically really challenging to get involved but then again how much value can they add besides capital so eh, if you can get capital do you really need them well at some point you need capital though so uh, correct, I, I think there's is,
0: there's a stage difference here, which is early stage, which you specialize in. Eric yeah. is is fairly robust, right? Right now, absolutely. Yeah, we've, but you start going busy. for an A or B round, you have to go to the big firms.
2: Yeah, yeah, that's that's correct, and that's that's the challenge here. And I think that's why it's interesting to have Matthew and and, and James because you know they're not startup, you know, pre-stage stage companies. James has been doing this for twelve years.
1: Yeah, we'll, we'll call it twelve years. More like like 13, 14, But you know.
0: Yeah. So what's it like? So uh, James, like, what what what's a pitch like? In a you go into you know Sand Hill Road, some you know uh, some Godfather of the West Coast scene, and they just laugh you out of the office. Ad tech. <laughs> well, I lost I mean, all my money. In that. Been,
1: yeah, I mean, we've always been in a weird weird situation because while we're in the ad tech space, we are a SaaS company right? Like we've never sold an ad. We don't take a percentage of media. Uh, and so, you know, I think a lot of, a lot of investors, like they, to get in the room, you have to convince them you're not ad tech and then they're kind of interested, but then they get a little bit confused or they have flip side too, as I'll say there, there's kind of like these investors that have been around ad tech a long time. Uh, you know, Eric excluded here, but like I've been around ad tech a long time. And if it doesn't look like a traditional ad tech, they're a lot less interested. And so sometimes like we would fall through the cracks of like we're too ad tech for the SaaS investors and we're too SaaS right. for the ad tech investors. Right, And it takes really, it takes, you know, the right investor to kind of see like, okay, there is there is a great opportunity here.
0: How much do you get into this conversation of recurring versus non-recurring revenue? Uh, because this was a, I have my own scars, battle scars from this at Beeswax. Yeah,
1: I mean, like to us, like recurring revenue is revenue that people are actually committing to you, right? But like that's that has changed, right? Like every industry talks about, you know, Trade Desk is like, we have this, this is like ARR. And I'm like, but right. we <laughs> could stop spending tomorrow if they all agreed to, right? Like it would just go to zero other than like commitments and the pre-spend and things like that.
0: So is your model, I, I'm not, when you price, are you a hybrid, like a minimum commitment and then overages and things like that?
1: Yeah, we call it usage now. Overage, okay. overage has more of a negative kind
0: of Sure, usage. So how, did the, how do the VCs think about usage revenue?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think they, they look at usage, you know, maybe slightly discounted to the committed, you know, the committed amount. But at this day and age, like most of the time, they are, uh, they're valuing it roughly the same. Interesting. Uh, there's, yeah. One of the firms out there has done a lot of work on this. They actually try to make the point that usage revenue is in some ways more valuable because you could have a customer. We've all had customers that pay you 10K a month and don't use your platform. Right. Versus somebody who's paying you 10K a month and doing 10, 20K in usage. You actually know that customer is like getting value from you.
0: Yeah, so also a little quick story. When we were raising the Beeswax B round, I guess it was 2019-ish, 1819. We're SAS. That was what got people excited about beeswax, but also we had a usage revenue, and our usage revenue started skyrocketing during our fund process. Like we had to update our slides every month because we couldn't believe how how hockey sticking we were going. And I was excited about this. And it was reacted very negatively by VCs we were talking about. They literally, I had one VC literally look at my chart that had like a bar graph of recurring plus usage up and to the right. And he said, I don't consider that usage revenue revenue at all. Like I just wouldn't, I'm just going to mark that to zero and we'll do your multiple based on the blue bar, not the yellow bar, which I thought was one of the dumbest things I'd ever heard a business professional. And this is a real well known West Coast person
1: yeah no that and that's like the old that that is definitely the old school thought there right i think it was the the firm i was talking about earlier was OpenView, who does a lot of they write a lot of stuff around like usage and it's like usage should be i mean i can understand discounting it a little bit because sure it's not contractually committed but all those contractually committed customers can churn too right like it's not it's not like it's you know any
2: any more guaranteed really are you once said I wanna, it might have actually been in like a Slack channel. I don't think if it was a it was a tweet that for ad tech companies, net revenue retention is the metric to point to, particularly if you're if you're not a SaaS business.
0: Do you still feel that way? I I think it's very important, and uh, this is something that Luma helped me with a little bit. Uh, So we use Luma in our transaction, and we were presenting our churn or revenue retention based only on the committed, and so it didn't always look good because we'd lose a customer here and there at Beeswax, and also some of our customers would go out of business. That was a pretty common problem for Beeswax. And the Luma people said, let's do cohorts based on net revenue retention, including the variable. Right. And suddenly we had significantly negative net revenue retention, which is good, like a negative churn. Uh, so it was basically if you looked at cohorts of beeswax customers, they would on t- in terms of total revenue to beeswax, they would grow every month, even though every once in a while we would lose a logo. And so um, I think that was very instructive as long as you're honest about it and you're talking about, you know, customers who do sometimes churn being being excluded from that number.
3: Yeah, I, I agree. We we do, the say, we do the same. We're looking at at, uh, at cohorts and net road retention per cohorts, so that you can have amortized the effect of the smaller, or or sometimes you've got miss of your portfolio of, of your of your targets, right? So you're going to sign a contract for like six months. That doesn't work out. Contract churns, but it's a small number, and you've got three other contracts you sign at the same time. But they're going to double or triple over a couple of years, and so you can offset that. That if you look at just like pure churning numbers of clients, it's not really representative. If you build NRR and you look at NRR over actual revenue, total revenue, whether, whether it's recurring or, or usage-based, gives a much better picture because there's a lot, a lot of the value of ad tech is in the volume and the volume builds up over time. Right. And so if you look at your client, I think one of our oldest clients has gone up 500% in value over four years. Uh, and, and that's really what you want to see as, as, uh, you know, as your client grow because they're using more of your services, right? So that's, that's, I think that's the right metric. The NRR metric is really strong.
0: One piece of advice I give to entrepreneurs is, uh, especially younger ones, is that um, churn is not a gap metric. And what I mean by that is there is no single reliable definition of what is churn, and you should think about how it matches your actual business because public companies out there, SaaS public companies all have different definitions of churn, all meant to make their numbers just look better. Matthew, I want to talk to you about, about policy, privacy, and stuff like that, how that affects your fundraise. Like, if you... You go in there, I'd imagine there probably people who are just scared off by your, the whole concept of what you're doing.
3: Yeah. I mean, you know, it, it comes down to the, the distinction I was making earlier between the ones who understand and the ones who don't. Right. The the ones who don't, they're very difficult to they, they might understand SaaS, they might understand the metric, but if they don't understand the space you operate in, they don't understand the dynamic. They're they're really very, very quickly scared by the the macro kind of impact of regulation and you know, Google and Google, Meta, Apple, kind of overweight presence in the space, like because it's complicated, right? And so, like, it it just creates this kind of weird dynamic where, like, yeah, like I don't see the I don't see the path, I don't see the way because I don't understand the intricacies. I mean, it's an eight hundred billion dollar market that we're addressing, right? Like, there there's a lot of leftovers, there's a lot of crumbs that you can build big businesses out of. But from from thirty thousand feet, I guess, from Sand Hill Road, it doesn't it doesn't look big enough. They're all going after the billion dollar company, and so. Right. You know, it's 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 difficult, and and regulation. I mean, it's a huge opportunity for the for the for the space to reinvent itself, for a company to come with innovative ideas, right? That's what led to the creation of ID five. And I think there's a bunch of companies out there, even verticals, right? If you think of data clean room, the whole identity space, all of that is 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 going to be creating massive value over time, and it spawns out of 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 uh, regulatory changes and kind of technical changes. So it's actually an opportunity. But if you're not kind of aware of how the space is organized, what people actually use technology for, how it works. It's scary. And so that's where the difference is between the one who understand, or are willing to understand and can invest into the space, and the ones who are like, yeah, yeah, no, I'm not, you know, it's it's too complicated for me.
2: On the other side, you have Kevil, which is riding the wave of everything is an ad network, ad tech is eating the world, you know, commerce media, wh- whatever you want, want to call it. Do you find that, especially over the course of the past year or so, James, investors are, you know, generally like more interested in, you know, where where the sort of growth in the market is going and, and how you guys are, are squarely situated? Yeah,
1: I mean, absolutely. Like, I think Commerce and kind of retail media being so kind of hot right now have definitely helped us with with both inbounds and and conversations with with companies. I'd say one of the tried and true ways to get interest from an investor is to have one of their portfolio companies use you. Right, like I think I've gotten the best leads of all you know, all time have always come from hey this this portfolio company that like, you know the investor sits on the board. They, they see that that company selected Kevil to build their, you know, retail media platform. And then they're like, who's this Kevl company? I should talk to them. And so yeah. that's, that's like, uh, if, you, if you really want to be sophisticated about targeting certain VCs, go target their portfolio and make sure you know which ones they're on the board of because other companies they might know about, but they don't, they don't really care, right? It's like, who are they on the board of? Go try to sell those companies and you'll get into that VC in the best
2: way possible. Awesome. And Matthew, the, the decline of the cookie or the, or the cookie going away, does that provide similar tailwinds for for you or is it because it's, you know, in this world of privacy and compliance, there's it just got too much hair on it?
3: It made the problem we're solving a lot more visible for the in- investors, for the investor community, right? Because they also like that, that meta kind of got hit massively in terms of stock value, right? The stock price. And, and they were like, oh, what's the problem? Oh, IDFA. Okay, so identity is something that creates massive value because Meta has lost like hundreds of millions of dollars or billions of dollars in value, right? So they they were able to associate what we do with what happened to Meta when IDFA started to be removed and and, and cookies for retargeting with Critio and all those things. So I think it helps make the problem more visible and more kind of understandable for them. So it's definitely been uh, helpful, if you wish, in terms of trends,
0: yeah. One of the things that venture investors really are looking for is what's sometimes called venture scale returns. So for in the venture business, you're looking for very large outsized returns. And I, I feel, and maybe there's a question for Eric, I feel as though ad tech has had an enormous number of successful exits, just an extraordinary number of, of successful exits, but you know only a handful that have been over a billion dollars. and a pretty small handful at that. I guess you're an early stage investor, Eric, so maybe it matters a little bit less. But if you're an A or a B round investor, how do you think about those sort of things?
2: Yeah, I mean that's by, by design. That's why our, you know, funds are early stage funds because a nine-figure or 10-figure exit to an early stage fund um, can lead to incredible performance, but if you are a, you know, sort of like multi-billion dollar fund having a billion dollar exit, you know, it doesn't even move the needle. And I think that's also, you know, one of the things about venture that's hard for entrepreneurs to wrap their heads around. It's like, wait, if I have a billion dollar outcome, it actually doesn't matter for you. Um, so yeah, I think as you get later stage, the aperture sort of opens up to I think less classic uh, Series A and B firms and more, you know, some some of these like private equity firms that are starting to converge with VC that look for SaaS businesses, you know, in the five, 10, tw- 20 million dollar range because they can have a, a a lower, you know, return multiple because just their their model is different. They go for you know three to five X in, in three to five years. Um, so similarly a nine to 10 figure is sort of like low 10 figure exit for them can be like awesome.
3: Also the check size has gone up right over the past. Like, I don't know, we started, uh, raised the A in 20, was that 2020 yeah. and the B like we're in the middle of it right now. And, and I think that now you've got a lot of people who say like, no, it's like, you're not raising enough. I need to, you know, we've got like minimum 20 million, 30 million, 40 million checks. Because uh, they've because, raised because, larger funds. Because they've raised larger funds. And so, like, and they're looking for those kind of outsized returns. Especially the, the more west you go, the more it is the case, right? They're they're only going after the ten or the eleven figure exits, which you know maybe they get it with the fifteen minute deliveries to things, <laughs> but it's difficult to see that happening in uh, in in ad techs. It's true because you know it's it's it, yeah, it, yeah we we don't have a lot of uh, a lot of those examples.
0: James, did you get that? Did you get a lot of how big could this get conversations?
1: Yeah. I mean, absolutely. Right. And I think it hurts us. I think you, you tweeted this morning, right? That like, it's like, we have the trade desk and then right. you look at Magnite and it's like, you know, tiny compared to the trade desk. So it's like, if you want to point investors to say, this is how big ad tech can be, you better convince them that you can be the trade desk. Cause there's really no other examples.
0: Right. Yeah. You look at a very successful company. One of my favorite examples is Innovid, uh, which is a clear leader in space, you know, roughly 140, 150 million dollars in revenue. And they're they're trading at 1x revenue on the public markets. And that would really give me pause as an investor to go into something in the measurement space, potentially.
2: But um, then you have double verify and irrespective of where they are today. Uh, I had dinner with the original seed investor in Double Verify who wrote it through, you know, the two PE rounds and then IPO, and it was a 99x return for them. Right, right. 99x. They,
1: they, they do, they exist, but I think it's it's much harder to look at that and say, like, it's, it's you know, highly possible compared to a lot of the other, you know, like SaaS or you know, any of these other kind of companies where they're just kind of churning out multi-billion dollar public companies that, you know, there's ones we don't even know the names of that are out there. They're like a billion dollar public company for mechanics
0: or something, right? Like uh, these exist. Right. I'll, I'll give another anecdote of my beeswax days. So this is early stage. I think maybe a round had a really good meeting with the West Coast VC. We were pretty much done with the meeting. I was getting positive vibes. Like we want to dig in. And then he did a Columbo, like as we're leaving, he's like, one more thing. Um, if someone came to you and offered you, you know, say 150 million for this business, would you consider it? And I being a rational human being said, "Yeah, sure, I consider it." And he's like, "Well, we're out. Sorry."
1: Wrong answer. You have to, Wrong say, answer, you have bro. to say that I I'm going to run this. This is my life's work. I
0: have a, I have a brain tumor that makes me immune to <laughs> real offers. I only want to go to Mars and build build robots to serve the ads. Uh, anyway, sorry. so that gives you an example of kind of the VC think um, a bit. Um, so we talked about the trade desk. Um, that kind of leads into the question of valuation. Um, so valuation is sort of an art, especially in the, uh, private companies, and multiples are the easiest thing to use, of course. Um, but you have one giant outlier with an uh, with a crazy valuation, and then you have a lot of companies with sort of not so exciting uh, multiple valuations. So um, anyone want to chime in on this? I mean, one thing I'll say
1: is that when you look at the outcomes, it does rationally mean that ad tech valuations are going to be lower and so like i've talked to like early stage founders who you know read about the companies raising at 100x arr for like their SaaS company and he right. like look but you're not going to get that in ad tech right like you're not because like people people aren't factoring in a 40 billion dollar exit they're factoring in a one billion dollar exit or a 200 million dollar exit and so, like, you are going to see, you know, compression as compared to that, like, fast growing SaaS company in the design space or something like that.
0: No one's getting 100x anymore.
3: That was like a zero interest rate phenomenon. Oh,
1: AI companies oh, are one just exactly got 300.
3: <laughs> but I was going to say, like, we we had a bit of a, a you know, a, a moment in time, right? In 2021, 2022, where things were crazy and you had like 20, 30, 40, 50, 100 maybe X, like your revenue could kind have of multiples. I think it's back to, Reasonables, I would say, like 5 to 15 or something like this, 10, 20. But there's two things that are really important. One is your growth rate, right? If you grow at 100% or, or more, like you're con- certainly going to get a massive premium. The second one is, and I think maybe back to the trade desk example, is how much of a the monopoly, I'm not saying monopoly, but like how much of a, 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 a you know network effect can you build and how much dominant can you be in your vertical? Because that's attracting a lot of value back to you. And, and, and VCs like to bet on the winners, right? And so the more they know that you're going to be the winner because you're the, you're the, the, you know, the head of the pack and, and everybody's consolidating around you, I think there's a lot of that network effect dynamic in our space in particular that is driving also a higher multiples.
0: Yeah, you look at companies like LiveRamp that uh it's pretty hard to switch off of that if you're using it for onboarding or you know double verify. They have a comp- competitor, IS double verify, obviously uh, heated competitors, but as an agency you have to use one of them, right? You're not you're not going to d- choose not to use them. And those are the kind of effects that investors want to look at. And I'll say the other
1: thing that that can lead to lower multiples in ad tech, right, is just competition. Like if you're raising money, the number one way to get a higher multiple is to have multiple term sheets and competition from your round. But if there's less, you know, less A round or B round firms writing term sheets for ad tech companies, that it will also push multiples lower, which is why for investors like Eric, it's a great, it's a great business to be in if you know what you're doing. So like you get more reasonable, there's less competition and you, you can kind of bring value. So to all the investors
2: out there, you're, you're missing out on good opportunities. I spend a lot of time using that exact verbiage. Well, well said. And so I, at the end of the day, we know there's going to be nine and 10 figure outcomes. There, oh, there always is, right? So it's, uh, yeah, it's pr- pretty, pretty clear it's a real opportunity.
0: Yeah, I mean, it seems like it's heating up a bit. Cybids was sort of a roughly 10x multiple on revenue. And... Um, and uh, MadHive with their crazy round, also around 10x revenue-ish. So it seems like things are percolating. Uh, it's also, I think, important to note that you, you could st- with companies in earlier stages, you're still talking about revenue multiples. One of the problems is that uh, given the interest rate environment, uh, public companies are being evaluated on EBITDA multiples, which often lag until they get to a certain growth rate, whereas startups are rarely, if ever, on EBITDA multiples. So, what advice? Let's go around the horn. Like, let's say I'm a CEO listening to this podcast. I'm doing my business is doing pretty well. I already have a seed round in my, and I have some revenue. What should I do if I'm looking at an A round? Uh, maybe start with Eric. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, I, I mean, number one, listen to this episode because you know these
2: these are two two of the top founders in the in in the space, and they were dropping a lot of gems throughout. Uh, I think it's, you know, summarizing what I heard from them and what our selection criteria is, um, you need to be able to clearly articulate the opportunity because there are outsized opportunities in this space and you, you better well be building for them. That's number one. Number two, you need to, especially in this environment, have excellent metrics specific to revenue, specific to NRR, specific to growth rates. And then number three, be able to paint a picture of how this becomes a a really big business and see if your, your, your uh, perspective and investor is on the board of one of your customers. I think that's (laughs) one of the, I I actually never heard that from James and it's like a no brainer and like, gosh, that'll get you in the door quickly.
0: Matthew, you
3: want to give your advice? Yeah, sure. I say select, select who you're talking to very, very carefully. Uh, You're going to lose, like, it's, it's a huge time suck, right? It's. I think for me over the past like what 10 months that we've been kind of you know talking to investors we closed the first tranche we we're still talking to them getting to the second tranche it might have been like maybe 30% of my time so you want to make sure you get you get to the know as quickly as you can and move on and so for that target the ones that are that you think or you know are going to understand because they've invested in this space before because they're X. Ad tech, right? There's a lot of funds that have been funded or that are that are led by former ad tech execs. That they'll 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 know, they'll understand much better what you're doing. And I think if you want to look for the right ones, look for the traditional financial VC type, but look also at strategics. There's a lot of interest from strategic investors now that the markets are coming back up a bit, and that there's there's a lot of cash to be invested, a lot of like or, non-organic growth plans that are being built. Uh, there's a lot of strategic investment that is an opportunity for for startups in our space to get backings, and and it's smart money. It's backing, it's financial capital, but it's also uh, a client. It's also some kind of you know industrial support. Uh, so like look 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 at the one that makes sense for your business, but like look broadly. And make sure you're not you're not uh, you're not missing out on on uh, on on some of the most interesting ones. And James, what what do you have to add to this?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think if you're if you're running a
3: seed company
1: and you're now looking to raising an A, you need to build a time machine and go back six months and start building the relationships with the people that could lead your A, because I think that that's the that's the biggest thing is that you want to have these exist. You want to have people you've been talking to building the relationships while you're not, like, in the middle of a process so that when you get to a process, you have those first group of people that know you, have seen your traction, understand your company. Uh, I think that's hugely important. Like, the people that led our A round, I, you know, I met them years ago, right, and talked to them for a long time. And so I think that that's really important. But then I'd also echo what uh, Mathieu said, which is, like, making sure that you're selecting the right people. Like, I've talked to seed rounds that are, they're obsessed with, oh, we're going to go get you know, Andreessen to, to lead our A. And it's like, <laughs> it's not going to happen, right? Like they, I don't think they've done very many ad tech deals at all. Your numbers aren't where they would need to be. You're based in North Carolina. You know, all these things that like are not going to happen. So really trying to find the right investors and hopefully your seed investors can also help you with that.
0: Yeah, I've definitely seen I, that. I, wa- I, wasting time on uh, the Andreessen Sequoias of the world when there's just yeah. like zero chance.
3: So I try I tried, I tried to do what you said, uh, James. I, I cultivated maybe... Half a dozen, maybe you know, ten uh, uh, relationships with like investors that would really have been great lead for our B rounds. Maybe talk, started talking to them like ju- right after we closed DA. Right, they reached out and say, "Hey, like that's interesting. Let's keep in touch." And we're like, okay, makes sense. they have portfolio company in our space. Talk to them every quarter, kind of updated them, growth, progress, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And it was like you know, late late 2021, early 2022. And they were coming back to me. Absolutely, you hit five million ARR. You're golden. That's great for B round, right? and then 6 months later like yeah 7 or 8 you're great and then 10 to 12 <laughs> we're we're definitely there and so it's like come on guys like, like you know they, they keep moving the goalposts and so the education piece i think it was useful but in the end it's it the market changes so quickly that the relationship you build like 12 to 20 to 18 months before you're actually going to raise and and the expectation that, that you set and the numbers you you have in mind that all changed so quickly that it's difficult to um and in, in the end none of them got involved in our round at the uh, as, as a matter of fact right so all of that time was lost <laughs> there's
0: there's no worse signal than the enthusiasm of a vc on a first meeting it has no correlation whatsoever to whether they're going to invest or not 100%. they're they're trained to be enthusiastic that's their job is to make relationships with entrepreneurs and be enthusiastic and tell them they're doing great and then oh, yes. the real meeting where you actually present your case is where what they really think
1: I remember one of the meetings we had, it was like one of the worst in-person pitches we ever had. And we were just grilled mercilessly. And like on the way out, the guy's like, you'll have a
3: term sheet on Monday.
1: I'm like, what is going on?
3: (laughs) 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 All right, man, things are weird. That's what makes the process really difficult, right? Because you have to manage your own emotions. You get out of the first meeting or a second meeting and you're like super pumped and you're like, my God, this is my new investor. There's a great connection here. And then the next thing you know, they don't return your emails anymore. And you do that 150 times over the course of six months. It's exhausting. Or they suggest some really weird
0: pivot to you. They're like, you know, it's great what you're doing, but maybe you should be doing, uh, you know,
3: a uh, food delivery, 15 minute food delivery. Have you ever thought about that? If we had more time, I would tell you about (laughs) an investor who tried to get us into uh, malware detection because of our publisher footprint. I mean, I didn't even know how to start to respond to the stupid ideas he put forward as the, as the, the yeah. real direction that 5 should take. <laughs> so like, you know what? I'm, I'm out. That's over. Yeah. All
0: right. Let's take a quick break and then we'll come back and talk
4: about the news of the week. Hey, this is Tom Webster from Sounds Profitable. As a fellow friend of Markitecture, I hope you've been able to enjoy some of the great content and interviews that my partner, Brian Barletta, has been producing here about ad tech and the audio space. Brian and I are 100% focused on growing podcasting and digital audio through research, advisory services, and our own unmissable private events, which are all made possible with the support of our 140 partners, from publishers to ad tech providers. But you don't need to be a Sounds Profitable partner to stay plugged into the future of audio. We publish two weekly newsletters and a daily news brief called The Download that promised to keep you educated, informed, and even entertained about the world of podcasting. And of course, it's all available as a podcast. All of our content is ad-free thanks to partner support, and we won't use your emails for anything other than sending you the news. So I hope you'll join us as we set a course for the future of audio at
0: soundsprofitable.com. All right, we're back. So interesting news. I'm going to start with my favorite piece of news um, because I used to work there. So um, right after we we recorded last week, Freewheel put out a press release that they have done an integration deal with Magnite. This is following Freewheel's announcement a couple weeks back that they did a deal with Roku. And I think this is a big news and I kind of want to instead of just throwing to the crowd I'm going to explain it. (laughs) So here's why I think it's big news. So Freewheel is the leading ad server among broadcasters and complex video businesses and uh, one of the problems these companies have and advertisers have is that um, the distribution of high quality video is somewhat fragmented so it exists on uh, the websites of these uh, publishers but also on YouTube, on Roku it exists on OTTs Uh, properties like Samsung, Vizio, etc., And getting all those ads to work together is really hard because in many cases, those distribution partners have their own ad sales rights, um, similar to the way linear TV evolved in the US. And so as a result, the net result of this is that broadcasters often make less money than they should because ads aren't serving right because of competitive blocks or technical problems or things like that. And secondly, advertisers have problems controlling frequency and controlling where their ads appear. Um, I think we've all experienced this. So my take on this is that, Freewheel is kind of knocking out one at a time a lot of really important distribution places. With Roku, it's obvious with Magnite, I think this is part of the SpringServe relationship where SpringServe has quite a few video ad serving contracts with OTTs. And by bringing all this together into a single auction, you can do the logic to provide the best experience for the advertisers and the publishers. So I'm pretty psyched about this, even though it's really in the weeds kind of news. uh, And that's why I just monologued for five minutes about it. Uh, (laughs) uh, James, I kind of would ask you a question since you're an ad serving expert. What is your thoughts on video ad serving, how complex it is and whether you have to do all these kind of deals or or is it just, you know, a tech problem?
1: No, I mean, there's definitely a big part of the like human problem here, right? Like the like you said, the exclusivity, the blocks, the all the stuff that goes into these like really legacy relationships. But I just think it's a really novel idea that you know a ad server could have one unified auction. Like, I wonder if we could get that other places, right? Like instead, right? <laughs> of, instead of all the the things that we hop around to make that happen in other spaces, you know, I think that's just like it's a step in the right direction, and it's it's good that FreeWheel kind of made that leap.
0: Well, Google does a unified auction as long as you participate on their terms and give them all the data.
3: Right, right, yeah,
4: yeah.
3: <laughs> I was going to say it was great if we had that for all publishers on display as well, and and we didn't have a, an ad server that's also very uh, partial to the result of the uh, of the auction. Ari, right, where where is this coming from? This is like Roku, boom, Magnite, boom.
2: Um, you know, Free Will is like you know be, being super aggressive now. Do you have any insight into like? Wh- Literally, like, where is this coming from?
0: I I think there was a a lot of turnover um, in terms of the management team there, and I think they're taking a fresh point of view. I think that there were, you know, they acquired Beeswax. They um, They had a lot of product development around I would say more of a marketplace approach where programmatic guaranteed and other inventory would be available to buyers through Freewheel. And I think that was difficult because the players and broadcasters are so strong and don't want to necessarily participate in a single marketplace. So this is more of a federated approach. And I think this is, it's great. There was also a deal about two years ago that got virtually no press where uh, Freewheel got interoperability with YouTube for ad serving. And they're the only ones in the video world, I believe, that has that. So I'm pretty bullish. Good job to the Freewheel team. So let's see what else. So um, Twitter has partnered, sorry, X, has partnered with Integral Ad Science on pre-bid targeting. So we've seen a number of deals over the years with Walled Gardens integrating with either Mode, IAS, or Double Verify as a way of um, verifying the quality of the inventory. I think this is interesting for two reasons. One, because it's probably, you know, Linda's influence here. I, I, I doubt that Mr. Musk has any idea who integral ad science is. Uh, and secondly, it's pre-bid, which is kind of interesting. I'm sort of like scratching my head about what that means exactly. Um, anyone want to take this one? Maybe Matthew?
3: Yeah, sure. I, I agree with you that it's it's uh, it's another sign towards uh, making X Twitter. Are we calling it Twitter or calling it X? <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> <laughs> it's X. It, it's X. Uh, yeah. Making it kind of a uh, uh, kind of uh, uh, acceptable for advertisers. I think you've said numerous times that the revenue was still down massively from the, the uh, you know what about this time last year, right? When the deal when, when the deal uh, started. The reports
0: started. say sixty percent down.
3: Yeah, sixty percent down. So he, they they need the money back. And I think you know one thing that advertisers hate is is to be uh, to be uh, in the wrong context in the wrong place. And there's a lot of wrong places on social media. So you know they should have started here. If you if you if you you know if you take it back like. There's less there's less uh, 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 brand um, um, uh, you know uh, contextual problems uh, brand safety issues on traditional publishers than there is on social media so so that's where that you know is and DV should have worked first and foremost so you know I think I think it's a good thing for brands I think it's a good thing for advertisers uh, whether it's gonna be enough for them to get a put money back on on X I don't know but it's it's definitely a, a step in the right direction
1: Yeah, because, I mean, Twitter's, or X has always had, you know, massive amounts of brand unsafe inventory, right? So you assume that they built internal systems, they probably just laid off all the engineers that wrote them and they stopped working, (laughs) right? And so, like, the, I imagine, though, like, the real problem is not, like, the concern of the brand isn't like, oh, our Netflix ad might show up next to unsafe content. Like, that was always a risk on Twitter that Twitter had somehow gotten past. Like, the brand issue they're dealing with is, like, a brand issue at the top. And like you can pay IAS all you want, and it's not going to fix the brand <laughs> issue at the top that's like causing the problem, right?
2: Well, no, they, they, we, we, they we, we, Again, I don't know if this is anecdote or you know just like things being surfaced, um, but there seems to be like a lot more incidences of you know just like unsafe content around Twitter, you know, since the the change in, in ownership. I mean, James, you, you were on a podcast, the uh, the the Get Market. Uh, folks, a couple of weeks ago, like focus completely on like, what would you do with Twitter? And it was mostly around ad product, which I agree, Ari and I have been talking about this for a year now. Um, there's two things that they need to do to win advertisers back. It's number one, improve the ad product. And number two, do something to uh, ha- at least have some assurances around, around brand safety. And this is squarely in the ladder. So I think it's really good I and mean, it's important. But I don't, I don't
1: think it's like actual brand safety. Because, like, maybe there's an increase in, like, politically intolerant speech, right? But, like, there was always, like, a lot of very unsavory, like, you know, pornography and stuff like this on Twitter. Oh, there's like, it was, like, NSFW. Level, right? like, yeah. Yeah, like, like that stuff has always been on there. And so I think the real issue is, like, they lost all the brand advertisers. And those brand advertisers were just saying, we don't want the story out there that, like, here's what Elon posted and here's Netflix advertising on Twitter. Right. And like, you can't fix that. Right. And like, that's like, I think that's the, that's the core of the issue they have from like the branding part, which is why I think like on our episode, like the, that episode, it was a lot about, well, how do you get like performance and small businesses and, and the, like those kind of advertisers who aren't, who aren't tied up in that, like we can't be seen advertising here.
0: Yeah, it's a complex issue, um, and I, I'm just sort of skeptical about how this would work technically given that Twitter is an algorithm, algorithmic feed. How does IS going to, in real time, block something? Um, we have Lutz Elschmeider um, coming on the show in a couple weeks, so we can ask her. Um, I think there's also just a general skepticism around how IS and DV do these deals with the partners the walled garden partners where they don't have full real time access uh, as was brought up pretty extensively in the current youtube scandal or controversy around them serving out of band video ads so the other google antitrust case moved forward so uh, for those listeners are familiar with uh, their two major Google antitrust cases, there's actually like six, but uh, most people are thinking about the the DOJ's case against the ad tech stack, but there's a, another case where the DOJ has been suing about their use of default search placements. And that antitrust trial is moving forward with a September date. And uh, the judge uh, threw out the allegations regarding the pre-baked search results, which effectively is the Yelp case. So there are two parts of this case. One case, one part was that Google uh, search results that had aggregated search information from third parties like Yelp was thrown out. And the second part was the default search engine part, um, which is continuing to move forward. And this case could be quite substantial if Google is prevented from buying those search deals. Anyone want to take this one?
3: I mean, it's a utility, right? They're, they're 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 the pipes. If you think about the what, what what people use to access content and services online, it's telco, but it's also operating system, it's also browser, and it's also search engine, right? All of that is part of the utility. It's part of the pipe that delivers the content to the people. And and utilities have to be regulated, right? And they have to be neutral. You can't decide what's going to be distributed. You have to have some form of, of neutrality, right? That that's the spirit of the I'm going to play the, uh, the 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 European Socialist here, but that's the spirit of the <laughs> digital markets act in Europe that defines the notion of platform, right? The notion of gatekeepers, which are things that are that have a utility function, and that must ab- abide by higher kind of uh, 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 a compa- competitive uh, standards uh, because they're just they're just too important for society. This brings up an incredible question, which is
0: how did we get a French person on a podcast in August? <laughs>
1: <laughs> I was going to say like I'm I'm happy to play the role as the free market american here because like it's it's just not a utility though right like it's it's not in the sense that there's you know usually utilities especially in the US right like they're regulated because they are the only option like i have one choice for power to run to my house and so the pricing is set by the state Everything is pretty regulated. Uh, there are clearly other options than Google, right? Like, I mean, DuckDuckGo, Bing. Like, there is there is a replacement. There is a replacement that is one that like, click away for anybody. So I just don't think it rises to the level of utility. I think they are abusing their monopoly power in other ways, right? Like, I do think there are issues with with some of the things they do, but I also don't think that like a search engine should be regulated as a utility.
0: Well, this sort of reminds me a lot of the Microsoft IE case from the 90s, uh, where they made the same argument about the browser as part of the operating system. And the argument against it was that the default matters enormously. So you could switch to Firefox, but the default is IE. And I think that's the case here, which is if you use a different browser like Safari, the default is still Google in the search bar and 99 percent of people won't change it or don't know how to change it and they can buy that because of their monopoly. Um, well,
1: but that's a great thing to regulate, right? Like I think if you were going to I think it's one thing to regulate how the search engine is operating and I think that like I would be very against that, but the idea that Google is not allowed to pay, you know, other firms to to get preferential treatment or not allowed to abuse their mon- monopoly powers in other ways, right? Like intentionally suppressing, you know, someone to to favor themselves like sure, maybe you can make arguments there.
0: Right. I think the remedy in Europe for Microsoft was at some point um, when you first open your operating system, they had to show a dialogue giving all the different potential browsers that were available and they had to be randomized. They weren't preferring themselves and all that sort of stuff. So you can imagine that working in search as well
3: and in browsers right when you when you launch your operating system right you want you're on android you want chrome or you want safari you want firefox you want opera you want whatever it's the same logic right and even app stores and you see that with in i think it's in holland that there uh, in the netherlands is a case with that that has been pushing apple to offer a different app store on ios devices uh, because it's the same thing it's distributing the the, the 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 content right and so if you control content distribution you can decide which content gets distributed and which which doesn't and so you need to have some some form of competition at that's at that distribution point
1: yeah yeah no i absolutely agree there i think we should also i don't know if it's just the pick on google segment because there's another thing i don't know if all that came out about uh about how uh, db360 is it's set up so that db360 and the google network never bid against each other
0: Interesting. I did not see that, but that sounds pretty consistent.
3: (laughs) There's a pattern
1: of behavior here, right?
3: And so basically
1: there's essentially, you know, it's like they kind of claim it's to help protect people using both. But having written auction logic before, it's very easy to exclude an advertiser from bidding against themselves, even if it's coming from multiple sources.
0: Well, that would have had a huge effect during this second price era. But in the first price era, it probably doesn't even matter that much. Possibly Um, true. All right. Last news of the week. Um, so Cadent was acquired by a P.E. firm for six hundred million dollars. They say they are also going to acquire a lot more companies. Um, Nova Cap was the acquirer. Um, they were previously owned by a P.E. firm. So this is this. I always don't know how to take these P.E. swaps, um, but I assume it's good news. It seems like the people involved were pretty excited about it. For those who don't know, Caden's kind of a strange company. So in Caden is involved in various aspects of the TV business, more of the traditional TV business. So they uh, – and I may be wrong about all this, so correct me if I am. They operate a network, a, an ad network in the TV space of remnant TVs inventory. I think they're the leader in addressable TV. So addressable TV is where different 30-second spots are being shown to different households on the linear uh, pipes. And they have been doing that for a while And then they also serve ads into cable VOD systems, which is really sort of a backwater of the cable business, where if you go to the cable VOD, showcase their ads there. And they do some CTV, but I think they're primarily on that side of the equation, which is great. I think that they have a new owner because there needs to be a lot more innovation in those areas. You know, Eric, how do you think about this in terms of the traditional TV versus CTV? Uh, Should we should we care about this?
2: Yeah, I mean, traditional TV is still a seventy something billion dollar market here in the in the US that's in desperate need of, of innovation um, and technology. So yeah, for sure. And yeah, for sure, it's all converging. PE to PE, when you know it's a company that's in a growing space that presumably has really good metrics and reportedly it's it was a six hundred million dollar valuation. You know, this this could just be a, a case of fund dynamics where PE firm number one got their three to five X in three to five years. P.E. Firm too thinks that there's a three to five X and three to five year opportunity for them again. And if that's, you know, their, their fun model. And if you look at some of the bigger deals from this year, it's been in this advanced TV space, right? Mad Hive was again, 300 million at a, at a billion or something like that. So it seems like, you know, for the later stage stuff, t- TV's where it's at.
0: Yeah. And uh, Dave Morgan at last week on our show, I think he said 65% of the dollars are still linear. Exactly. Uh, which is a crazy number.
1: Another reason that these these kind of PE swaps happen, right, is that the the old fee, PE firm may have basically made the investment they're going to make in this company. Because it sounds like they want to go and do acquisitions. They want to be more aggressive. So, you know, moving to another PE firm, they might have a lot of fresh capital they're ready to put in to, to do those bolt-on acquisitions to see how maybe they can make a move in CTV, things like that, to, to kind of, you know, go to the next stage.
0: Yeah, CTV would be the obvious target, I would think, um, because they. Uh, yeah. my understanding is they don't play a big part in that space right now, but they have a lot of volume, a lot of sales people, a lot of uh, transactions going through them. So that seems like kind of an obvious
3: they've area to of, invest. They've got a lot of ad- addressability capability. They can really kind of pinpoint households, right? It's all the cable. Uh, it was called uh, cable something before, right? It renamed a few years ago uh, to yeah, cross-media. Yeah. It, it, so it's kind of all of the local cable operators kind of aggregated at national level. So you can do national campaigns across kind of a number of cable, local cable. So it's all addressable. They've got a lot of like household addressability uh, uh, features, data on those households. It's It could be a very powerful business if it really kind of jumped to light speed in terms of like the, the digital transactions that embrace it. And and it's very easy to get confused. I think uh, with Ampersand, which
0: used to be called NCC, um, which is a very very dissimilar but related business. These cable hybrid companies can be pretty confusing. Um, Maybe we'll have someone on the show who could explain all this stuff one day. All right, with that, I think we're going to wrap it up. So this was an awesome conversation. Hopefully we uh, gave some some entrepreneurs some insight that will help them with their next raise. And I'm sure all myself and all the guests would be happy to talk to any entrepreneurs who are interested in hearing more or getting advice. So thank you so much. So James, Matthew, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Awesome, guys. Thank you all. Thanks. Thanks for listening. New interviews are
2: added every week at Markitecture.tv and your favorite podcasting app.